Welcome to the Healthy Family Project by Produce for Kids, covering the hot topics in the world of health, food, and family with a dose of fun. Another great topic for today's episode. I have been planter gardening, I think that's a term, for some time now, living in apartments and then homes with yards that don't really lend themselves to a large garden. I hear all the time from friends that space is an issue when it comes to gardening or even just, you know, landscaping in general. Even if you are known not to have a green thumb, so don't don't uh, skip to the to the next podcast at this point. Don't worry, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna scare you here. Um, I think this episode will give you simple tips to upgrade your space and impact the environment at the same time. Today, I'm talking with Heather Manzo, who is the executive director at the Allegheny County Conservation District. Listeners know, or I guess if this is your first episode, now you know, um, I'm from Pittsburgh originally, so it's nice to reconnect with my city, but also shed some light on someone who is doing so much to improve the environment there and beyond. Heather currently works in the conservation field at the nexus of soil and water to protect those precious natural resources. Prior to ACCD, she worked in higher education as a regional food systems and community economic development consultant. She is co-founder and emeritus steering committee member of the Pittsburgh Food Policy Council. Heather holds a master's of science in agroecology and sustainable systems, practices permaculture and urban ag at her home. She tends to grow pumpkin patches in her front yard. So keep an eye out if you live in the Pittsburgh area, if you see... If you see a pumpkin patch growing in the front yard, it might be Heather. And in her free time, documents the plants and people of wild places armed with hiking boots, a camera, and plenty of trail mix. So let's get started talking with Heather. Welcome, Heather. It's great to connect today. I know it's not quite garden or planting weather yet in Pittsburgh, but here in Orlando, we are starting to plant away. I am by no stretch of the imagination an expert gardener, but have done a lot of trial and error over the years here in Orlando. Plus, as I mentioned in the intro, my sister works alongside Heather, so I'm often tapping into uh, my sister's knowledge to help me along. I guess I'm self-taught, but I still have a lot to learn. So excited to talk to you today about making an environmental impact with small landscapes. But first, before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit about you? Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. I appreciate the opportunity. We are anxiously awaiting spring in the Northeast and using this time to plan out the coming garden. I've been lucky to have a career that matches my interests with people, places, plants, and food. I grew up in a big Italian immigrant family, and we had plants everywhere, relatives everywhere, food everywhere. (laughs) And so I've carried that on into my professional life. And over time, just found that plants are such a wonderful tool to create relationships between people, forge relationships with nature, and give you something to do in the backyard. It's a great way to always learn. It really is. And I have found... Even the smallest, I know we're going to get into all of this, but with my kids, even this when when from the time, I guess, I don't know, the time they could really like walk and touch things and uh, move around, just recognizing that like seed to table or like, you know, that process. And I think sometimes a lot of people in in kind of like our area at Healthy Family Project, I think we find sometimes we talk to kids who think, you know, oh, there's my food. And where does it grow? Publix? Publix grew your food? Really? (laughs) Like our Publix created that pineapple or whatever it might be. Um, But it sounds like you have a really magical way of looking at growing and cultivating and 
And like I said, it's something I try to do myself here in Central Florida. There's a lot of, um, I guess in any climate, you're going to have some hoops and loops that you find along the way. But um, I'm finding myself frustrated with the pesky bugs and I have sandy soil and it's all trial and error. I think I need to adopt some more of your mindset of really watching, taking the time to watch how things work when I'm out in nature um, away from my backyard. All right, so let's start simple. So pretend you are talking to someone who has no gardening or planting experience. What is an easy way to get started with a small landscape that will make an environmental impact? The first question uncovers what kind of vibe the user would enjoy, as well as a starting point. For example, an edible landscape, a small container garden, a simple flower bed, or a holistic permaculture design all take very different resources and time commitments, but each of them will attract pollinators, provide beautiful beauty, and potentially even a snack. Oh. It will change the way water moves in a property too, which whether you have too much or not enough, it's always one or the other when you're gardening. Right. So that leads us into the second question and what it hopes to uncover, site realities. So it's important to watch how the sun moves across your property as okay. well as water. So is it where is it shady? Where is it hot? Does water pond anywhere? Um, do you have any physical limitations yourself? It's very different to say I'm going to plant a quarter acre vegetable garden versus 10 to a few small pots on right. a patio. Sometimes there's considerations outside of our control, like an HOA or zoning issue. So a very uh, quick anecdote from graduate school, one of my professors, he grew perennial prairie ecosystems in his yard in New Orleans when he was doing his dissertation work. The management of a perennial prairie ecosystem involves burns, prescribed burns. And so you can imagine his neighbors in the fire department <laughs> oh my gosh. really took exception to that. So a shout out to Dr. Bruno Basari for being a bold eco-warrior in that regard. Uh, yes. <laughs> it makes for a good story. So again, just think about what do you what do you have to work with? How much time do you want to commit? But you know, the insects and the birds and the butterflies, they will find a plant. Right. Well, I think that's really a good point to think about what time you have to commit. Cause I think sometimes we get, you know, in these grandiose and springtime is coming along and you get in this grandiose plan. I'm going to have this full garden and then it just, you know, you can't keep up with it. So I think looking at that is, is definitely important. Um, and the vibe, I like that, like knowing what you would like to, what, what you're, you know, looking for, what kind of experience do you want to have in your yard? Um, is definitely an important too. I know I have a Pinterest, um, my Pinterest. <laughs> I have a I have a backyard board and um, I try to put things in there and then kind of take a look at it. And then I will Google or research what the plants are that I'm putting on this board. And sometimes I'm disappointed that it says, you know, not great for the weather that we have here in Central Florida. Um, uh, sure, I know. And it's always tempting to have a new garden every year. And, and it is an, a hobby that can become addictive because you might start out wanting a tomato plant, but you also might end up wanting to have a, a fragrant night garden. Right, I <laughs> and know. you can find yourself consumed with uh, all of the potential that's out there with this hobby. For sure. Well, that I guess that leads me into what uh, plants are best for, and I guess, you know, when I say what plants are best, it differs between different um, uh, geographic locations. And I guess also by best, I mean, what will the average person not kill <laughs> within a week? 
Sure. And and every gardener knows that every single person has that experience from time to time. So don't be too hard on yourself. Um, but you do, of course, want your investment of, of time and money in those plants to uh, work out and literally bear fruit. So there's an old adage in gardening, right plant, right place. It's a great starting principle. In essence, it means watching how the sun moves investigating what kind of soil you're working with, and having an awareness of any limiting factors there are with water. This time of year is great before the season kicks off to sketch those things. You know, figure out where in your yard uh, you have shade, sun, downspouts, high and low points. And so that way you get sort of a base map of your yard. And then you can start looking at the types of plants, edible, fragrant, pollinator, whatever it is you're interested in, and plugging it in. It's sort of like uh, creating a little puzzle in your yard. So for example, if listener, listeners are interested in edible gardens, annual vegetables are easy. They're straightforward. A nursery can do the work of starting that seed for you. You just have to be careful when you put them out that they don't get sunburned the first week. Um, and, and starting with the seedling really does take pressure off of Again, the sprouting, the mm -hmm. equipment, grow lights, all of that sort of thing. And so if you're in a place that has frost, uh, frost-free dates are important to know. And you just don't want the cold to kill those little tender baby plants. So tomatoes, peppers are really easy. Um, working with seeds is a beautiful process you, if you'd like to do that. And you can plant some fairly easy varieties into the ground. You just have to read the back of the seed envelope for what kind of weather will facilitate healthy plant growth. So easy, quick sprouting varieties to direct plant into the soil include radish, peas, lettuce. Those can be done in the spring and the fall when it's cooler, especially where you are, Amanda. And after frost, things like beans, pumpkins, and okra, which really have beautiful flowers and are super hardy, um, and all sorts of greens, both Asian and American varieties are easy, rewarding, and can be quite prolific. And there's nothing like watching a pumpkin patch grow in your front yard. Oh, that sounds amazing. And I can vouch for the back of those seed packets because, you know, they have the, um, their growing regions and there, I'll have, we'll have to link up to, we'll have to find it and link up to it in the show notes because I reference that constantly. And something else I reference is the, um, if you go to, I guess, one of the bigger stores like the a Lowe's or Home Depot, the garden section there, um, I feel like they have, and you probably know this, but they have indicators that say which plants grow well, either in the same pot together or next to each other. Um, companion plant. Yes, yes. Yes. I just learned about this because I have a plant that I was like, that plant looks so sad alone. What can I put in there? And I asked at Lowe's and they were like, well, duh, you just look for the numbers. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, that's great. They have a code system. That makes it really easy. Yeah. 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 Companion planting can do all sorts of things like, you know, um, attract pollinators to the thing that blooms first to help the second crop. Or for example, pea. They're a legume. They put nitrogen in the soil. So tomatoes eat a lot of nitrogen. So if you plant peas and then plant tomatoes, then you're, you know, fertilizing the soil essentially with the uh, biological activity of the preceding crop. So there's all sorts of things like, you know, marigolds repel deer. So can planting that that's like that's a really interesting part of gardening too, if you want to get into it, is is basically how to grow plant friends together. 
yes. how they can help each other. Yeah, I know that's like my that's my new thing because I have found well because I've found I've planted things by each other and they don't like each other. That's probably like most of my things paths that I have gone down are because I'm failing. <laughs> Something has failed and I have to figure it out. So I'm like, why do you guys not like each other? And it's like, well, because they don't. <laughs> That's the grand experiment of nature, right? You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One other item I think to mention for your listeners who might be in um, interested in recreating natural habitats and not just vegetable gardens um, is, you know, just to mention how do you select native plants that would have uh, success? They might be hard to kill. And so native plants by design are hardy. They come from a place, they're used to those conditions. So if it's dry and hot where you are, or if it's humid, or if you have cold winters, the plants from that place know how to live in that environment. So they just need carefully tended that first season to make sure, again, that they're in the type of soil with the type of light they desire and that they get watered well so that their roots can really get established. And after that, perennials are fairly easy to take care of. You just have to trim them, watch for too much disease, um, have a little bit of a tolerance for things looking overgrown after bloomed, after they bloom, Mm -hmm. because, you know, the leaves, again, are um, doing their thing with photosynthesis to put the energy back into the roots so that they can survive until the next season. So I'd also say, you know, especially for those enthusiasts to attract pollinators, natives are really important to think about as well. Yeah, I think, um, like you said, you have to be okay with some of that after, after the way it looks afterwards and know that feel feel confident that things are happening, even though it might not. I know my husband is like, why do we have that dead thing over there? And I'm like, it's not dead. (laughs) It's so tempting to take the weed whacker or the lawnmower over them, but you got to know that they will come back and bloom again for you. And that's part of the fun of creating what some gardeners call a plant palette. So it's, again, you have that idea of where the sun moves in your yard and what sort of plants you want to have. And then as you plug them in, you can also select plants um, if you're going the way of native habitat creation where they'll bloom in succession. So just make sure to pick a variety of plants so something's always blooming and that can really take the eye off of the plant that's recharging its batteries, so to speak, for next year. Right. And I, I would say something else that I've done as far as native plants go is in my neighborhood, we'll take a walk and I will kind of take a peek at other people's yards as we walk through the neighborhood and I will notice plants that are doing really well and like even snap a photo of it and say, cause I'm like, why can I not, you know, again, from my, like, why can't I do this? So I'll walk around and say, wow, okay. That, that seems like that plant's doing really well. So let me figure out what that is and how I can plant it in my yard. Sure. And oftentimes there's lots of neighborhood gardening groups or neighborhood pages. And you'll see, you know, it's it's a way that gardeners can connect in a neighborhood even to say, hey, does anybody have any perennials to trade? And that way you can sort of get to know your neighborhood better, your neighbors better, you know, connect with each other, create larger habitat between your yards. And also just... um, Gosh, sharing plants is as old as humanity itself. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a nice act. It's a nice activities way, and can also be an economical way to get some new plants into your yard. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I definitely am. I'm all about that. We're lucky here. My community has we have three, I think now, community garden spaces where you can, um, as long as there's a plot available, you can apply for it, and um, right. they're raised beds and. Um, 
it's, uh, I keep saying I'm going to do it, but I usually, my backyard, um, I do a lot of container gardening. And so I, maybe this will be the year. This will be the year that I look, uh, watch, this will be the year and they won't have a plot available for me. (laughs) So, um, also speaking of container gardening, I do a lot of this. Um, Do you recommend container gardening for small spaces? What are your thoughts around container gardening? Absolutely. Container gardens are great for so many different situations. They're so easy. They're accessible. Um, They're kind of a low investment way to experiment in that you're not, you know, getting a rototiller and digging up your yard necessarily. And they work for all kinds of people. You know, you can elevate them and put them on top of tables so that reduces bending over. If you've got even a little balcony because you live in an apartment, it's totally possible to hang baskets and grow plants like strawberries and edible nasturtiums, but also put you know plants down on a patio. Mm-hmm. Um, pots can be really, really small, or you can even think of a raised bed as a container garden. So again, gardening is flexible. It's what you make of it. And things such as salad mixes, herbs, flowers grow really well in container gardens. There's also excellent varieties of more traditional garden plants like cucumbers, tomatoes, beans, and peppers that have been bred to have small forms and they'll perform better than other varieties that need to stretch out more in a traditional garden design. Um, And for me over here, the one that keeps failing. Um, I uh, have found whenever I plant, like you were talking about the sun, the shade and recognizing where that is in your yard, in my containers, it makes it easy for me to move them if I plant them in a spot that may they may not be enjoying. <laughs> um, Absolutely. I know plants in general have wheels. You can move them around, but yeah. when they're in a pot, it does make it even easier. Yes. I'd say, you know, that does bring up um, a point, Amanda, that the one uh, kind of consideration that, can you, that a gardener has to have with containers is that they do need special attention during hot and cold spells. You don't want that soil to bake into a brick or turn into an ice cube and kill the plant. So they've got to be watered very, very regularly. And if you use the soil over and over after years, just be mindful that bugs can overwinter or that a lot of fertilizers um, can build up soluble salts that aren't great for plants. So again, it's just good to think about hygiene in containers, give Mm -hmm. them a little wash, maybe a light bleach solution, change up the soil and just make sure to, like you said, water and shade those plants if they're showing signs of distress. Yes, there's, I have right now, there's a pot that is in a very strange place. It's like by my pool filter in my backyard, like behind, like somewhere where it just doesn't, I mean, it doesn't, it, I don't, it, you wouldn't look at it and be like, wow, that's a great addition to your backyard. <laughs> but it is the only place that I can get what is in this pot. I have moved it all around in this spot because it's um, partially shaded throughout the day. Um, and we have a lot of sunny days here. So it's partially shaded throughout the day and the plants are doing really well, but it's just in a very strange spot. And like I mentioned, soil for me here, um, our soil is, um, we have, a, it's, I don't want to say sandy, I guess it's clay. So where I'm located in central Florida, this region has a lot of clay in the soil. And so it is very hard to grow anything um, in that I have found that containers for me, especially when it comes to like any kind of um, fruits or vegetables, I've just found more success in the containers. Mm -hmm. 
but maybe yeah. maybe I'll learn how to deal with this clay. But it seems everyone I ask in the neighborhood, they're like, uh, don't even try. <laughs> yeah, it can take, it takes years and years and years and millennia even for soil to build up. So if you're going to enjoy a container and that works for you, you know, you're, you're in business. So don't, yeah. <laughs> don't worry about it too much. Just enjoy it. Well, okay. So now what about attracting butterflies and bees? Although, you know, it's been years. I, my kids are like, why would we want to get stung by bees? Why would we want to attract the bees? You know, and I keep trying to explain to them. Um, but what about attracting butterflies and bees? You know, you're, we're always hearing about save the bees on all the t-shirts and um, things like that. So what can we do with our, um, you know, planting at home? Sure, sure. This is just really important, right? The web of life, it's back to ecology 101. And so we're all, you know, many of us are very aware that our natural ecosystems and resources are very much under constant increasing pressure from so many directions. And the entire chain of life really does depend on pollinators like bees and butterflies. If we don't have pollinators, we don't have flowers, we don't have food. It really is that simple. And so bees have, you know, been impacted by a poorly understood phenomenon called colony collapse disorder. And some research has suggested a combination of factors contribute to this phenomena, including an invasive mite, pesticides, habitat loss. So truly creating any kind of habitat in your yard really does help support the entire chain of life. It's really important to do. So if you uh, think about how to frame it out in, easy, in an easy gardening approach, one example that would work all over the country really is a plant called milkweed. So milkweed can be thought of a ditchweed in some respects. You usually find it at the edge of parks or on country lanes, and it does attract monarchs. Milkweed is the only plant that can support the life cycle of the monarch. It's called a larval plant. Mm. So every butterfly has a larval plant. And that, again, is the only one that when that little egg hatches and the butterfly is going through the metamorphosis, you know, that whole little dance that we teach kids when they're little so they understand the life cycle of a caterpillar and all of that, you know, they need to eat a specific plant. So with monarchs, um, think about that little butterfly, they travel from their wintering place in this very small specific place in Mexico. And in one season, uh, multiple generations of the butterflies fly across North America into Canada and back, all with the support of the milkweed so crazy. Um, plant. Yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, airline pilots have observed monarchs flying at over 11,000 feet. They are sturdy creatures. So why not give them a snack as they do their yes. thing? Yes. So really understanding pollinators need food for all life stages. The larval stage for butterflies can really help with plant selection. And so... One other example from the Northeast, we have a beautiful butterfly called the spicebush swallowtail. So guess what the name of the larval plant is? The spice, <laughs> the bush, spice bush, right? Yeah. yeah, so sometimes it doesn't take a lot of digging to find it out, but just saying, what are common butterflies in my area? What's their larval plant? And that search will give you some plants to start okay. with for consideration. That's a good tip. Yeah. And if you love birds, um, lots of folks love hummingbirds, for example. We've got ruby-throated hummingbirds that love trumpet flowers, as well as flowers of the scarlet runner beans, which are edible for humans, too. So there's an example where planting a plant that's beautiful to look at, um, birds will come and eat the pollen and pollinate them, and then you get some green beans out of the deal. It's not so bad. And the hummingbird, for example, because it overwinters in South America, you can also sort of enjoy that uh, sort of 
give yourself a pat on the back because you're helping that species thrive. You're helping fuel that species up for that long journey. And they know they have a place to come back next year so you can enjoy them again. That's awesome. Um, so, okay. I have actually, the, the as, you were t- as you were talking, I was thinking when you say about birds, um, kind of off topic, I have a sulcata tortoise <laughs> that roams my backyard. Cool. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and he is just not big enough yet. Oh, he is, I should say, he is still small enough that a semi-large bird could probably carry him off. So I know when you were talking about birds, I was like, how do I keep the bird? I mean, hummingbirds are fine, but I was thinking, is there a, is there a plant that keeps the birds away <laughs> from coming into my backyard <laughs> until he's big enough? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I think attracting a predator, you know, with a hawk or an osprey, <laughs> that might be different than a hummingbird. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so, you'll be okay if you're growing some flowers. Yeah. Well, and actually he loves um, hibiscus flowers. So that's also, again, off topic here, but that's also been an interesting exercise for our family is finding the things we can grow naturally in our backyard that he likes to eat. And one of those is hibiscus um, flower. So he loves hibiscus flowers and hibiscus leaves and can eat those all day long. But it's just funny. That's wonderful. (laughs) You know, Amanda, I think it's right on topic because it just shows how um, gardening and playing around in your backyard provides so many teachable moments for kids and adults. So I, that that's great. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, that we do that. And we also do, my daughter, who's a pretty, my youngest, who's a pretty selective eater, um, she makes her own salsa. And um, she, we planted, we went out and bought all of the things that she needs for her salsa. And we planted them in one pot. And it was, we called it Charlie's Salsa Garden. So that fun. she could, so when it was time for her, she it's so funny. She makes the salsa on Sunday and she'll eat it with lunch or whatever all week. She's, there's like 10 things she likes to eat. And this is one of the things is her salsa. <laughs> so anyway, so we've done that too, which was fun to put that all together in one pot. So then when it's time to make the salsa, I send her out, um, you know, all right, time to put down the iPad, go get your... <laughs> Perfect. Go get your things from your salsa garden. Um, all I right. might try to steal that with my picky eater this summer. That's a great idea. Yes, you really should. Um, all right. So I want to keep us, I know I want, we're, we, we have time here. So let's see what else we want to talk about. I feel like, all right, let's jump into this really quickly here. So landscapes that promote soil health. Like I've, I feel like we've kind of touched on this, my, sure. you know, problems with my clay over here. Um, but, and we also kind of touched on how do you know what plants are right for your region, but what, is there anything else you have to add in that kind of area that we haven't touched on? Sure. And I think, you know, you can't underscore the importance of good soil enough. Composting and compost really is like gold to a gardener. So I'd really suggest that you have an idea about what sort of soil you're working with already. And so in your case you mentioned sandy soil, clay soil, which bring their own challenges as for sure. But you also have to think about um, soil from the perspective of being a natural fertilizer. Organic methods are just, in my opinion, the way to go. It creates a non-toxic environment for 
um, you know, humans of all shapes and sizes. So you're protecting yourself, you're protecting any littles that are in your yard, but you're also creating a non-toxic environment for those pollinators we discussed previously. So you'd hate to go ahead and use some toxic pesticides, for example, um, and then, you know, go ahead and accidentally kill those pollinators that you were attempting to attract. Yeah. So I'd say compost is just beneficial from all of those perspectives. Um, Another consideration is potential soil contamination. So we always want to think about human health first. And so if you live in an area where there could have been buildings previously or buildings that could have had uh, lead paint, for example, that chipped off into the soil, it's pretty easy to get a basic fertility test or a basic lead soil screen from your local county extension office. They even sell them in some of the garden centers of big box stores um, or some you know, conservation or nonprofit organizations in your area may offer those services as well. So I'd say definitely you can get a a nutrition profile if you want, or just go heavy on the compost, but definitely think about lead soil screening. And then the second part to that question um, to talk about how landscapes can promote soil health is again, thinking about choosing plants that match the environment again. So two very brief Um, examples of that are um, in landscaping are, for example, in the desert, in hot, dry climates, there's a type of landscaping planning called xeriscaping. And what that means is that you're selecting plants that have a beautiful form, color, flowering, but they might be cacti, succulents, things that have thick skin and can tolerate blaring sun. And the plants have adapted to be able to slow that evaporation of water out of their cells. So for example, things, if I lived in New Mexico or Arizona, I would grow very different plants than I grow here in Pennsylvania, just because they can't survive in each other's climates without a huge, a huge, huge amount of, you know, basically recreating a whole entire different ecosystem. Um, Secondly, like where you are, Amanda, hot, humid climates, There's challenges with fertility and fungus. That clay, sandy soil turns nutrients over so quickly. Water moves through so quickly. So plants from these ecosystems include bromeliads, uh, plants with large waxy leaves. You'll notice there's little pointy tips. Leaves typically have pointy tips Mm -hmm. like arrows. That allows these plants to shed water and manage the humidity and reduce the chance of dying from fungus. Um, These plants often have colorful structures within the plants outside of just the flowers. So they're just such cool plants to look at. And they have co-evolved with creatures in the area, which means um, that bromeliad plant is a home in nature for things like tree frogs. So the tree frog gets a house, they get a little pool to cool off and stay hydrated in, and they get a little environment that will attract insects so that they have dinner as well. So it's kind of fun to think about that interconnectedness between you know, what you want to have in the garden and will enjoy looking at, as well as what's just going to be easy because it fits in that ecosystem already. So speaking of bromeliads, I think I'm saying that right. Um, And I think this falls into that category. I have pineapples. Is that right? Do pineapples fall? Okay. So we, this summer, did um, all of the, you know, we're doing all the pandemic things that I'm trying to think of. Like we were trying to regrow everything, basically. Um, Regrow our celery and regrow our um, onions. Like just, you know, everything. And so we started we cut off the lids of several of our pineapples 
this summer and let those dry. And then we potted, I have a big pot and we, I think we put like three pineapple lids in there and they're doing really well. So (laughs) great. Oh, how much fun. Yeah. So they look nice. Um, you know, because everyone's like, oh, they're not going to produce a pineapple for three years. And I'm like, I don't really care because they look, it's, you know, they look tropical and they're fine. And if someday we get a pineapple, then that would be cool. But <laughs> yes. well, you'll have to keep us posted up here in uh, Pennsylvania. If that happens, that would be really, really fun to see work. <laughs> I know. I, I'm really excited. I, I know it does take some time, but you know, for until then we still have some nice foliage. Yeah. All right. So let's zoom back out before we close out, what can the act of planting a seed, nurturing a plant do for us? Sure. Great question. Seeds really are little miracles. Inside a seed is the potential to change the world. And I know that that sounds grand and ridiculous, but let me tell you how. They hold cultural and natural histories in their DNA. Seeds have been used um, over you know the last hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years as currency. They've been productive protected during wars. Uh, There was a heroic scientist um, from Russia named Nikolai Vavilov. He and his staff just really studied where plants originated around the globe and had an amazing collection, and they protected those seeds with their lives. Um, Seeds have traveled with immigrants across oceans and mountains. My family's maintained a variety of garlic that my grandfather brought with him from Italy about 100 years ago. That has grown in dozens of yards over the last hundred years, but we don't want to let it go. Yeah, because it ties back to my grandpa. Um, Seeds can stay dormant for decades or centuries, just waiting for the right conditions to grow and feed a butterfly, a bird, a family, and a community. If you hold a seed in your hand, you hold the story of a family, a culture, an ecosystem, and really humanity. Gardening is simply a perfect example of small acts can have big impacts and provides such fun, teachable moments for kids of all ages. I love it. You just gave me the chills. That was like, Ah. (laughs) that's so cool. It definitely, you know, I, it's funny because when you say this seed, you know, has been this variety or the seed has been in the family for so long. It's just so crazy. I was at a vineyard, um, a while back in Mexico, which I know People don't usually, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I was in Mexico in a vineyard and they, um, the family though had relocated from somewhere, I guess from somewhere in Italy and they had brought their variety, their seed and they had brought it there. And so they were talking about like the travel of the seed and how many years. And it was just mind blowing that this family had kept this variety of grape in their, um, you know, in their family for so many years. So just so cool. Yeah, those stories are cool. And there's actually a few seed companies that sort of specialize in collecting those seeds with significant histories. And so uh, I'm sure we can make sure to drop a relevant link in for, for some of those sources if people are yeah. interested. Yeah, because yeah. that's cool. Also a good, like cool learning thing if you're doing that with your kids too, right? Like they yeah. they were like, wow, this seed has been around for how long and came from where? So- all right. Awesome. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So before we wrap up, a friend of mine has been doing this on her podcast. Um, I, I kind of stole it, but not really. Um, so shout out <laughs> to my friend Jackie from Busy Mom Kitchen. Um, so I have ha- five hot takes for you to answer. So I'll just throw these out there and you choose one or the other. All right. Let's, 
Let's jump in. All right. Let's do it. Coffee or tea? Both. Okay. Snowy getaway or beach vacation? Beach vacation. (laughs) Fruits or veggies? Fruits. Phone call or text? Phone call. Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. And cups in the cupboard, upside down or right side up? (laughs) Upside down. No question. (laughs) So fun. Oh, well, thank you for joining us today and sharing lots of great tips. And I love that most, you know, listeners know I'm from Pittsburgh. So it's always great to have a Pittsburgh fellow Pittsburgher on um, and sharing all of these wonderful ideas with us. So before closing out, can you tell listeners, um, you know, we'll drop the, some links into the show notes, but maybe just where we can find it, some more information. And I know you mentioned you have a new kind of project going on. So if you want to share that too, that would be great. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's been really fun. It's been an honor to be on here and uh, get to get to uh, speak to you and, and your guests. So thank you for that. Sure. So if you're interested in some soil information and some, you know, water sort of information, you can check out Allegheny County Conservation District's website at accdpa.org. And I am starting a new project called Pandemic Kitchen, and it's going to sort of be the kitchen sink of all things, you know, garden and wild crafting and just, you know, art and projects and all sorts of things like that, that we're all doing to entertain ourselves at home during the pandemic. And you can find that on Instagram at Pandemic Kitch. And uh, we'll be having a website coming along soon, pandemickitchen.com. And we'll be having uh, loads of information there connected to topics like this. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that my sister was able to connect us and hopefully we can have you back because I feel like we have a lot more to to talk about. (laughs) I would love it. This has been a blast and I just um, um, have enjoyed the time together with you and your listeners. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you like the Healthy Family Project podcast, tell a friend and leave us a rating. It will only help our visibility so we can continue to create a healthier generation. If you haven't joined our Facebook group yet, please do so. We carry on conversations from the podcast over there and offer, you know, a lot of other great conversations and tips. Um, Also, you can tweet with me direct. I'm at Amanda M. Kiefer on Twitter and you can find me also on Instagram and you can find Healthy Family Project on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. Talk soon. (laughs) 